All right, I welcome you, if I am on, I welcome you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 45. Jeremiah 45. It's a whole chapter, but it's just five verses that we'll be looking at today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people and celebrate you to be reminded of Your truths from Your Word, to be stirred up to love and good deeds, to be filled with faith, to meet with You. We pray that You would help us now as we look to Your Word, Spirit, that You would be in the preached Word and that You would be in the received Word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah 45. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, You said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am breaking down, and what I have planted I am plucking up, that is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Really encouraging uh, passage this morning. But that, that verse... Maybe it maybe it stuck out to you as well. And do you seek for great things? Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. This has been ping-ponging in my head for the last few weeks as I have prepared, but much longer than that. Because ambition is something that I have had to deal with for my, my whole life. And I don't think I'm the only one. In one sense, ambition kind of divides us into two camps. Some of us are like, I don't understand those people. Uh, Because many of us are familiar enough with our Bibles that we associate ambition with expressions like selfish ambition, which means that's bad. Don't do that. On the other hand, some of us are just dispositionally driven to test the limits of what we can do. See what we can accomplish. At its best, this takes the form of the quote attributed to uh, the 18th century missionary William Carey. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. But this morning, I don't want to talk about how ambition divides us. I want us to think together, focus on how ambition, this struggle against ambition, to keep it in its place is one that we actually all share. 
We all need this call that Baruch gets this morning to not go chasing after greatness. Now, to preach against chasing greatness, it struck me as funny in a church like this. It may seem a bit goofy to preach against chasing greatness in a church like Rockport because we're not a particularly uppity bunch. We've got large families and modest incomes. We, we buy fixer-uppers and wear hand-me-downs. We, we are full of women who joyfully embrace unseen work at home and men who prioritize family and ministry over climbing corporate ladders. I praise God that you are a church that I can point to as exemplary for humility and simple faithfulness. But I am still convinced that we need this reminder this morning. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. We all seek greatness. It looks very different in our lives because we seek it in so many different ways. You you see this as kids go back to school. Maybe when you were a kid going back to school. One student goes in, they want to make a splash and get noticed by everybody. Maybe they're going to be class clown. Maybe they're going to be Mr. Cool Kid. Another kid, though, that's not how he chases greatness. He wants to be teacher's pet and excel academically. Maybe you are the other kid who, the third, the introvert, who just wants to make one friend and find that one person who really understands you with all your complexity and hidden greatness. We seek greatness in sports. We seek it at work. We seek it on the stage. We seek it in casual conversations after church. We seek it on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We seek it by being cutting edge and being down to earth. We seek it in a lot of different ways. We seek greatness. We are troublemakers who seek greatness through disruption. And we are rule keepers who seek greatness through perfection. We might play to a big audience or a little audience or to just one person. For some of us, our audience is just ourselves. We resign ourselves to obscurity and misunderstanding, but deep inside, we know, and it makes us sad, that the whole world is missing out on the greatness that is me. Sad. Our desire for greatness explains things like why I have such a problem when I feel misunderstood or judged by you. Clearly, you're missing out on my greatness. And this is a terrible disservice to the world. Friends, I believe ambition has its place. It has real value. But we need to keep it in its place. We need to see when it's moved out of its place. We need help so we don't fall into just chasing greatness. And God helps us in this passage by reminding us of three things about our ambitions. Three ways of putting ambition in its place. I've adjusted this somewhat from what you have in your outline. It's very close. One, we must guard against ambitions that disguise selfishness. 
We must guard against ambitions that disguise selfishness. Two, we must guard against ambitions that displace God. Three, we must guard against ambitions that dismiss God's promises. So first, we're called in this passage to guard against ambitions that disguise selfishness. Our passage indicates two ways ambition may be covering for obsession with self. So we have two ways to guard against bad ambition. One, don't chase greatness disguised as virtue. Put another way, don't assume that you aren't chasing greatness because you're one of the good guys. One of the striking things about our passage is who gets rebuked. It's Baruch, the son of Neriah, Jeremiah's faithful sidekick. Baruch was exemplary for humility and faithfulness. He was one of the good guys. He faithfully served as the scribe and assistant to the prophet Jeremiah in the tumultuous and heartbreaking times leading up to the Babylonian exile. And Baruch did this at great personal cost. Jeremiah was not a universally popular guy, as some of you know. In fact, his message was extremely unpopular. Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet because his prophecies are, in general, very depressing. There are these these points where, where God points forward to the new covenant that He is going to bring about. Those are encouraging. There's some verses... Where God says, I know I have the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you a future, but that's not the immediate future. So he has an unpopular message. This resulted in Jeremiah being beaten, put in stocks, plotted against by high ranking religious officials, and at multiple times almost killed. At one point, he's driven into hiding. At another point, he's kidnapped and carried down to Egypt. And through much of this, who do we see ministering at his side? Our boy Baruch. Baruch had backbone. He wasn't running off when things got hard. When Jeremiah had made so many powerful enemies that he was blacklisted from the temple, whom did he deputize to take his prophecy in and read it as a guest preacher in the temple. Our boy Baruch. And despite the fact that similar prophecies three years earlier had resulted in the priests and prophets telling Jeremiah, you shall die. Who went in and followed his instructions to the T? Our boy Baruch. Kid has backbone. Now we don't know a lot about Baruch. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, says he was an aristocrat. If you compare chapter 32-12 with chapter 51, it seems like Baruch's family did have connections in the royal court with his brother Sariah serving as something like a chief steward under King Zedekiah. His grandfather, Maaseiah, may have been the Maaseiah who recorded in Second Chronicles as being governor of Jerusalem under Josiah. It's spelled a little different, but it could very much be the same guy. It lines up. And this connection to power would also explain 
why in Jeremiah 43, the leaders of a coup suspect that Baruch is the puppet master behind Jeremiah, using him to kind of plan to overthrow them. They blame Baruch. Well, if he's just a, a servant, assistant, who blames him? But no, Baruch likely comes from an aristocratic lineage, which means he gave up a lot. He was definitely one of the good guys. Why do we care? We care because if anybody seems free of worldly ambition, it's Baruch. If anybody seems to have a pure love for the Lord and a desire to see His Word transforming His people, it's Baruch. Yet Baruch is the one that needs this gentle reminder we hear in our passage. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. And I think we need this gentle reminder this morning. Each of us, each day we walk through life, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. We need to be careful in speculating with the Bible, always. We need to be careful here in speculating what was in Baruch's heart. He might have aspired to be Jeremiah's successor, assuming Jeremiah ever achieved success. Um, We don't know what he wanted for himself, but we do know what great things we want. Reputation. We all share a universal desire to be well thought of. We differ in which crowds we play to. Big crowds, little crowds, conservative crowds, liberal crowds, whatever crowd. Choose a crowd. Humans play for greatness. This is what we do. We differ in which crowds we play to. We differ in which virtues we want to be recognized for. But we all want people to think we're great. I want, when I walk into that door and you guys turn around and see me, to be like, Warren! Maybe it's just because I have a unique problem with this. The Lord's been dealing with me on this for decades. But I don't think I'm the only one. So, one, don't chase greatness disguised as virtue. Second, don't chase greatness disguised as accomplishment. Thinking we're safe because we're virtuous looks inward, says, now nah, I'm one of the good guys. I can't, I'm not chasing greatness. Chasing greatness disguised as accomplishment looks outward and says, I'm doing a good thing, therefore this is good. What triggered Baruch's distress? Our passage gives the context in verse 1. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now Baruch actually took Jeremiah's dictation twice. If you read chapter 36, Jeremiah calls in Baruch, dictates all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him, and then sends him to the temple as a stand-in preacher. You get the sense of hopefulness. There are big things happening. There is like a national day of prayer. Maybe it was going a week. I'm not exactly sure. But they're fasting. There was a national fast. Maybe God's people were ready to hear God's Word. Maybe they would repent. And God would show mercy. But all these hopes are dashed when King Jehoiakim fetches the prophet's scroll and systematically burns it. 
he's got a knife and it's a cold day and he's having it red and then he takes some of it, cuts it off and throws it in the fire. And then he issues warrants for the arrest of Jeremiah and Baruch. There will be no national repentance in Judah. God hides his servants and it's perhaps during the second hiding that he gives his word to Jeremiah a second time with Baruch taking dictation again and recording all these heavy words that were in the first scroll plus some more. Friends, some of you walked into church this morning discouraged. I don't know what it would be about, but you walk in heavy. Like Baruch, you have poured yourself out for a good work. It might be raising children. It might be extending hospitality. It might be praying for the lost. Praying for the church in America. Praying for revival. You might have tried to build a ministry or tried to build a friendship. And it just didn't work. You tried to accomplish something good and it didn't work. And that seems to be what Baruch is feeling. Listen to him in verse 3. Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain, and I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. We can sympathize because we've been there. You start hopeful. You start enthusiastic. But a year or two in, a decade or two in, you're jaded, maybe a little cynical. Sometimes the destruction of our dreams is more sudden and more acute. A diagnosis, a family conflict. And we find ourselves knotted up with anxiety or angry or sad. Debilitatingly sad. And the way we respond to our dreams being crushed says a lot about what our dreams were all about in the first place. We assume that because the thing we're trying to accomplish is a good thing, that our heart's in the right place, that our ambitions are good, but sometimes it's just selfishness in disguise. And God loves us too much for that. So, He regularly flattens our sandcastles, pulls our gaze back to Him, and says, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Moving on to the second thing we see about guarding against ambitions, putting ambition in its place, we want to guard against ambitions that displace God. Because the core deception of our ambition is that we are the center of the story. The core deception is that we displace God and put ourselves as the hero in our stories. Hear Baruch's complaint again. Verse 3. Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain, and I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. A commentator, Philip Ryken, comments, he sounds even more selfish in the original Hebrew because nearly every word ends with a first-person possessive pronoun. My woe. My pain, my being worn out, my groaning, my finding no rest. Baruch's ambition seemed so good. He wanted to use his gifts. He wanted to see repentance and revival. Good things, right? 
Yes. He was brokenhearted over the hard hearts of God's people and the hard words of God's prophet. But somewhere along the way, he lost sight of God. Been there? He, he had made the story about him. Baruch had turned into the hero story of Baruch. And the hero story of Baruch had turned into a tragedy. Do any of you have hero stories that have turned into tragedies? Your love story was supposed to end with and they lived happily ever after. Not his repeated adultery, abuse, and neglect destroyed their family and left her stretched thin and scraping by on food stamps and charity. Your ministry story wasn't supposed to follow years of faithful service with being misunderstood and marginalized. Your family story wasn't supposed to include chasms. Kids, most of you under 16 haven't experienced this level of disappointment yet. We're very glad. But you are already being tempted, like Baruch, to put yourself at the center of your story. And that's why it's so hard when during kitchen cleanup, your brother doesn't pull his own weight. Because you're the hero. And the hero has more important things to do than dishes. In our stories, the hero, the, the, the stories we would write anyway, heroes don't do dishes. And they don't lose. And they don't wait. And they don't cry. We don't write in cancer, panic attacks, or childlessness. We don't give our heroes debilitating insomnia rebellious children, or broken families. This is not how we would write our stories. But it's how our stories go sometimes. And so we end up angry. We end up exhausted. We end up depressed. We throw a pity party. Baruch was throwing a pity party. Woe is me. And into this pity party, Yahweh speaks with His gentle reminders. Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. Baruch, he says, the train is still on the tracks. I am still in control. My story is going exactly according to plan. We are a church that celebrates God's sovereignty. That believes our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. That the potter has the right to make out of the same clay, of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable. But this is an easier truth to apply from a distance. When Ukrainian brothers and sisters have their lives completely turned upside down by war, we say, God is sovereign over war. 
when we hear of societal breakdown in like England or France, we say God is sovereign over nations. But America starts crumbling and we panic. We scream. We stress. We say the liberals are destroying my country. Why? Because America is my nation. America is where I live my hero story. Because I can't buy toilet paper and my hamburger costs twice as much. And the hero doesn't like this. I want great things for myself. I'm trying to live my hero story. But God says to Baruch and to us, this is my story. And if he's breaking down what he built up or plucking up what he planted, he has a right to. It's possible that God's story may include America being one more nation on the ash heap of history. Now, this doesn't mean you can't be a concerned citizen. One of the blessings and responsibilities of our system of government is that each of us has authority. Each of us are both ruled and rulers. But for those of you who, like me, sometimes find yourself walking around because you read the news and you're angry or you're scared or you're exhausted, ask yourself whether you've placed yourself at the center of the story and whether you're chasing greatness. Maybe God's peace would be spoken into your heart right now by hearing this gentle rebuke. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. This is not your story. It's God's. He is in control. He is the hero. Everything is working according to plan. Third, and this last one will be a bit shorter, guard against ambitions that dismiss God's promises. Don't let your discouragement over losing things God never promised cause you to miss the glory of what He has promised. This is one of the the key dangers of our ambition. That in displacing God as the hero of the story, in the distraction of chasing after greatness in so many different ways, we dismiss the roles God has given us and we devalue the promises that He has sworn. Baruch faced this danger and so when God delivers these harsh realities to him, He also delivers them with a promise. Yes, Baruch, my plan is for Judah to be a lesson of judgment. And I know it's discouraging. And I know it's scary. And some things that are going on in your life right now are discouraging and they're scary and they're frustrating. But Baruch and Rockport, you are in my hand. You are under my protection Behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places you will go. Doesn't that ring with the echo of Jesus' voice 
in Luke 21, verse 17, you will be hated by all for My name's sake, but not a hair of your head will be harmed. God does not promise you and me greatness. Not in that sense. But in Jesus, He promised life. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. Is that enough for you this morning? Is that enough for you this week? Is it enough for you that He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Some of you have not embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. This promise, you will never perish. You will have eternal life. This isn't for everyone. This is for those who are in Christ. And the Bible says that one of the things that holds people back from Jesus is chasing greatness. In John, there were people that believed Jesus. They saw good things. They they knew something special was going on. But they loved something more. They loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. And it kept them from Jesus. Don't let that keep you from Jesus. Don't let chasing greatness in all the things in life, the American dream, don't let it keep you from embracing Jesus. That ship is going down. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these things are passing away. Don't chase greatness. Chase Jesus. Because what He gives, when we release the greatness that we think we will have through gaining things, when we release the greatness that comes from thinking, but I'm a good person. God, look at all these good things I bring to you. No, we have to give up greatness in the things we chase and the things we claim. When you come to Jesus, you give up greatness and say, no, what I am is a sinner in need of a Savior. And when you come to Him like that, He is a great Savior for sinners. And so we come to Jesus and we give it all up and we cling to Him and He gives us promises. I will give you your life as a prize of war. And this is a promise that was dearly bought so He stands by it. And we can wrap up hearing an extension of this promise in Romans 8. Such a familiar passage, but so full of God's promises. We all want other people to be for us, but God is for you. If you are in Jesus, God is for you. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You don't need to chase them. He will give you what you need. 
And at the end, He will give you it all. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Do you feel judged by somebody else? Does your desire for greatness have a problem with that? Who is there to condemn? It is God who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, the future doesn't hold anything that's going to break God's promise. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is God's promise to you. God does not promise you greatness. So do not chase it this week. But He does promise you Jesus. And in Jesus, He promises you life. Let's pray. Father, these have been weak words by a weak heart. But You are a strong God. We thank You for Your promise. Pray that You would help us to live. Live in this. In Jesus' name, Amen.